It's a marvelous night for a moon dance With the stars up above in your eyes A fantabulous night to make romance Neat the cover of October skies Hey everybody, welcome back to the 12-6 podcast. I'm your host, Colin McHugh. It's time for MLB playoffs to start, and in a way that we've never really seen before. There's going to be 16 teams in this year's field, and as we all know from years past, once you get into October, it's anyone's guess who's going to be crowned World Series champion at the end. There's a few young, exciting teams in this year's pack, notably the Blue Jays and the Padres. It should be some really, really exciting baseball for the next month or so, and that's the end of my plug for watching Major League Baseball. If you're here listening to the show, you probably already know all of that. So anyway, today's show is the first of a three-part series on agents in baseball. They've been around for over 50 years, and most people outside of the baseball family don't have any real idea what they do. I'm going to talk to three different agents who have all been around for a long time, but have very unique experiences in player-agent representation. Today's guest is someone that I know very well, my agent for the last eight years, Mike Moy of the Moy Sports Agency in Atlanta. We talk about how we got into the business, the art of negotiating with baseball GMs, and the unique challenges of representing Latin players who make up roughly a third of the player population in Major League Baseball. I plan on releasing these three episodes in pretty rapid succession, so make sure you're subscribed to the show so that you're up to date whenever they air. Feel free to leave us a review and make sure to tell your friends. And without further ado, I give to you today's conversation with Mike Moy. Mike, thank you for being here. I know it's been uh, a long time coming. You've seen this thing from the beginning with me, uh, and I think we've we've both been waiting for this day, and I've been selfishly kind of holding it back because... I don't want anybody else to get to know you like I know you, but this is kind of the perfect uh, the perfect segue into um, what I'm trying to do here uh, with with having you and a couple other uh, longtime agents on the podcast to talk about some of your experiences in the in the game and around the game. So thank you so much for giving me some of your time, some more of your time. I've already taken like nine, yeah. ten years of it at this point. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm super honored to be on, and you've done such a great job with this podcast. Uh, it's been uh, very fun seeing you uh, produce it and all the great guests you've had on there, and uh, I'm just honored, you know? Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be some uh, some good stories, some good information for people who probably have never heard or seen this part of the game. If you're in the game, you know about it. If you're a player, if you're a coach, if you're a family member of a player or coach, you, you probably know this part of it. But um, to the average fan, you guys are kind of just the people in the backgrounds who sometimes get a bad name because there are some louder agents out there who uh, who kind of dominate some of the headlines. But at this point, do you know how many agents there are registered with the Players Union? Because that's to be an agent, you have to be registered with the union. Um, I don't know how many at this point there are. Well, I don't know the exact number, Colin, but I've I'm guessing that it's more agents registered than there are players who play. So, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of guys who are registered. It didn't used to be quite as many in baseball as it is now. Uh, there was a lot in football. And, and as you know, early in my career, I represented both football and baseball players. I only represent baseball players now. Exact numbers, I'm not sure, but it's in the hundreds. 
Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit to, like you said, when you kind of first started and we'll kind of work our way up to our relationship and then moving forward. But when did you get into sports, sports agency? And also how did that come about? Because I know you have a background in law, um, but there's got to be a detour at some point where you're like, this is the kind of law I'm looking at getting into. Sure. Well, I I was a high school student uh, when I first started reading about an industry that was a very burgeoning industry at that point uh, called sports agency. And um, it was, this was in the 70s. I would pick up the sports page, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, read it from cover to cover because I loved sports. It was a big part of my family. I loved playing sports. We were a very competitive family. And so I would read the sports page from cover to cover. And I started noticing probably when I was a junior in high school, junior, senior, uh, a lot of articles about players being represented by agents. And in some cases, players who unfortunately were taken advantage of and lost money as a result of bad advice or even in some cases, swindlers. And of course, that's the, that's what made the news. But the, the stories that, uh, that I was reading, I started thinking, you know, uh, this would be an interesting way to uh, earn a living. I knew at that time that I was probably going to have a limited sports career. Like, uh, you know, I, I played a few things in high school, enough to know that I wasn't going to be good enough to play in college. Uh, but I was fairly good at school. So when I started reading about sports agency, uh, it was uh, and and reading about some of the kind of negative things that were going on. I think it started kind of germinating in my mind uh, at that kind of early age that maybe I could could do this and actually be a positive, have a positive impact on whoever I was representing by providing good advice as opposed to bad advice. If that makes sense. Yeah, and when you, when it started, was being an agent a lucrative uh, career at that point? If you if you were going into law, and there were ten, twelve different avenues you could take, sports agency was not the the lucrative. Like, hey, this is what you're going to make your career off of doing, right? At that point in time, true. That that's unless you were a guy like Bob Wolf, and you were representing. You know, he was one of the early agents. He represented um, Larry Bird. Levy represented Carl Yastrzemski, uh, was an early baseball player that he represented. So he he was developing a a a pretty what I would would consider to be a pretty lucrative practice. But for most agents, it was probably something they did along with other areas of practicing law. When you were when you first decided that that's kind of the route you wanted to take, was it Bob that you hooked up with, or how how did you really get into the actual business of meeting with players and taking meetings and trying to recruit and doing all that stuff? Well, I, I got advice early on uh, while I was a, 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 a student at college. Uh, I, I was working at the college. I went to Georgia Tech. I was working for the Georgia Tech Athletic Office, and I met a lawyer um, who was a supporter of the program who kind of took me under his wing. And he said, you know, if you, want, if you really want to do this, and he was a lawyer at a big silk stocking firm in Atlanta, I think he thought I was kind of crazy. To want to do it. He said, man, if you really want to do this, what you should do is you should go to law school, uh, make the best grades you can make, get on with the best law firm you can get on with, practice law for a while, 
and then and then go out on your own and give it a try or you know try to get a job with another you know existing firm or whatever but get get that legal skill in your you know repertoire and so i i i followed that advice and um ended up going to law school um and ended up going to work for that particular lawyer's law firm he it's good to have good mentors and he he was a good mentor um and i made good enough grades that uh he was able to you know, straight face, get me, uh, get me a job there. And it was a great path for me to take, but I knew I didn't want to be a, a, uh, a practicing lawyer for the rest of my career. I mean, it was, it was a path. I was, I was on a, a tunnel visioned path <laughs> toward trying to pursue sports agency. And so after working there for a couple of years, I decided I'm going to go out on my own and give it a try, which was probably a mistake. And I didn't, I was naive. I didn't realize just how difficult it would be. I thought, hey, if you just, you know, have uh, have a good background, uh, you, you ought to be able to go out and present yourself to enough players that a, a few of them would see the benefits of having, a, you know, someone who's got a, a good, solid background as a lawyer and would hire you and you could help them. Uh, so I went out on my own. I had, had one early success that probably gave me a false sense of what this was going to be like. And it was a baseball player by the name of Greg Gagne, who's still a friend today. And he, he was the first guy I signed. And he was a, a, a great shortstop with the Minnesota Twins, won two world championships uh, with the Twins, had a great major league career. But in addition to that success, I had a ton of rejections and failures. And was really about ready to get out of the business when another mentor of mine, Bill Curry, who was a head football coach at the time at the University of Alabama, I went down to see him to say, hey, Bill, I appreciate all the help you've been giving me here, but uh, I'm, I'm ready to get out of the business. It's just not working out. And he said, well, it's funny that you came to me this week because earlier this week, I got a call from my agent. His agent was a star in the business, a guy named Robert Fraley incredible agent, incredible man of integrity, tremendous, both baseball, football, football coaches. He was a former quarterback at uh, Alabama, had a, had an incredible background, but Bill said his agent, Robert Fraley had called him that week and, and wanting to know, is there anybody that you could recommend to interview for a job at my firm that's come up? It was a pretty important position. And Bill said, would you be interested in interviewing for that job? And I was like, sure. Yeah, I'd love to, you know. So I interviewed for it and I got the job. And that was really how I got into the business. And getting into the business at that point means you're working under him. So are you doing a lot of negotiation at that point or is it more player to player interaction? So the unique thing about the opportunity that Robert presented, and I think just looking back on uh, all the failure that I had experienced up to that point, all of that failure was a really good thing. It turned out a really good thing because in my efforts to try to be a sports agent on my own, I had to learn a lot of things on my own. In some ways, in some cases, the hard way, in most cases, the hard way. So by the time I got to Robert's firm, he was more interested in representing the coaches and in some large marketing projects. He was a little bit tired of 
the area of representing the players. And he had a really good practice of football players and a burgeoning practice of baseball players. And so over a course of about six months, he just started giving me, he just started letting out the rope. And the more I was able to handle, his door was always open. I learned a whole lot from him, but he was giving me just as much as I could possibly handle. And I'd say about a year into it, I was the agent representing all of the, doing all of the negotiations and all of the work for that group of football and baseball players. That must have been like drinking from a fire hose at that point, you know, in, in terms of information. Listen, it was unbelievable. You know, I remember one story that uh, was probably a, a, a turning point, if you will, in, in my efforts to be a sports agent. We had signed a, uh, a, a junior, um, a really good running back out of Florida State named Sammy Smith. I'm friends with Sammy to this day. We, he's a, uh, um, an FCA uh, a leader at um, Ole Miss. But Sammy was, uh, was drafted by the Miami Dolphins. Uh, I believe it was eighth pick in the draft. And Leader Enterprises, the firm I was with, was in Orlando, Florida. So it's like right in the middle of, of, of his market. And Robert decides that he's going to go on a one-month sabbatical with his wife to Hawaii in the middle of what turned out to be a very testy holdout. (laughs) I was like thrown into the fire. Uh, Things worked out in the end. He was the last player to sign. He held out till like two or three games. And back then, that was the only leverage a player had was holding out. It's changed now. But I remember, and, and this was the turning point for me, my secretary walked in my office and said, there's a guy on the phone who says his name is Don Shula, wants to talk to you. Well, Shula was the head football coach uh, for the Miami Dolphins. He was my hero growing up. I loved Don Shula. Like I wanted to be, a, I thought I wanted to be a football coach in 10th grade I remember the Dolphins went 17 and 0, only team to go undefeated. And it was just like he was, you know, if I if I idolized anybody. And here's Don Shula, secretary says this guy says his name is Don Shula is on the phone. Well, it was Coach Shula. And he basically and this was well into the uh, uh the holdout. He chewed me out up one side and down the other. I mean, cussed me out said I was killing this kid's career. I was ruining him. What was I doing? I want to speak to Robert. So, well, you can't speak to Robert. He's in Hawaii. (laughs) And I just realized that something happened at that moment. And I was like, you're not a fan anymore. Like, like you can't, you can't idolize anybody. Like this is, this is war. This is a business and this is a battle. And I don't care if it's the, I don't care if it's Don Shula. And I, as respectfully as I knew how to say it, I said, Coach Shula, I understand your, your angst in this. I, I would love for him to be there as much as you would love for him to be there. But we have a business disagreement. And when we solve this business disagreement, my client, Sammy Smith, will be there. And he hung up on me. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is – and, 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 and 
seriously, I don't know that there could have been anything in my life at that point as a 30 year old that could have had a, a stronger effect on me than having to turn that page and say, look, this is, I am, I am a fiduciary for my clients. I am not a fan. I'm a business person and we're getting this done. And we got it done and we got it done two games into the regular season at a meeting that me and Sammy went to down and, and met with Don Shula and with Joe Robbie in Joe Robbie stadium. And when they real and, and Sam, they looked at Sammy in the eyes and said, Sammy, this guy's giving you bad advice. And Sammy just smiled at him and I had him coached, just smiled at him and said, coach, I understand what, why you would say that. But when he tells me it's time to sign, I'll sign. They invited us out of the room. We went out of the room. They invited us back into the room. They changed their position. We got a deal done. It's amazing. When you do get a little peek behind the curtain of the business behind sports, a lot of that, the fandom and the kind of shininess that you thought about these sports and these institutions as a younger person kind of fade away and it's it's amazing the speed at which they at which that can happen like you said like one call bam you're like yeah. oh this is not this is not how i remember this this is not how i pictured this going and it, it, i mean it's happened to me so many times i remember being in the arbitration yeah. room the first time with you being like oh this is what everybody has been talking about for all of these years <laughs> all these veterans talking about teams and the league and you got to get yours and you got to do what you got to do because there really is a business side of it that you have to be able to separate. And yeah. uh, for me, that's why, especially reading back on how the union started and how early agency was was looked down upon, but it's because, like you said, people were getting taken advantage of by the teams, and then the early, some of the early agents were taking advantage of them. And so guys learned to kind of like protect themselves, find their cocoon, kind of protect themselves against yeah. um, being taken advantage of. And, uh, you know, we've, I think at baseball has been fortunate to have some really good lifelong uh, agents like yourself in the game and be able to kind of pass down, I think, some of these things to the the new generation of agents. But when you, so you did football for a while, you did football and baseball, correct? But then when did you yeah. decide, A, it's time to go out on my own? And when did you decide that like, Baseball is the sport for me. So I decided to go out on my own. I went to work for uh, Leader Enterprises for Robert Fraley in 1988. I uh, was there for four and a half years and decided to go out on my own in 1993. And really a lot of the reason to go out on my own was uh, a desire from a family standpoint uh, to get me and my wife and my three young kids back closer to kind of extended family in Atlanta. And so reluctantly uh, left the firm and wasn't really 100% sure I was going to be staying in sports agency because you have to understand before I went down there, I had failed. But fortunately for me, I gained enough uh, experience and had enough victories of, of, of representing players on my own through Leader Enterprises and when I got back to Atlanta, uh, I started receiving some referrals and uh, kind of brick by brick started with mostly football players. I brought Greg Gagne with me back up to Atlanta 
I had brought him with me down to Leader Enterprises. And in 1995, I got a, again, a career-changing telephone call, if you will. I had represented some good baseball players in Orlando, but I had not signed a player. All the players I had signed up to that point as uh, coming back to Atlanta as Moy Sports had been had been football guys. I made a conscious decision not to do the Jerry Maguire thing and you know get on the phone and try to get a, get a bunch of clients from Leader Enterprises. I just I didn't didn't seem like the right thing to do. Robert had given me such a tremendous opportunity. I wanted to, you know I had so much respect for him. I was you know I was like okay if I'm going to do this it's going to be on my own. I'm not going to you know do that. Does that movie frustrate you as an agent? I wouldn't say as much frustrated as, as it is. It's I, I thought they did a pretty good job of of making parts of it pretty real. And so I love the movie, but when I watch the movie, it's like, oh, this is a little too real. This is a little too like what I <laughs> what, I, PTSD here, what yeah. I do for a living. Yeah. But anyway, what I was gonna say is in nineteen ninety six I got a phone call from someone who was advising Todd Helton. And I got into the recruiting battle for Todd Helton and ended up getting Todd as a client. And of course, Todd, uh, you know, he, he went on to have a, what I believe is a hall of fame career. And yeah, uh, so that same. was at that point, I, you know, baseball really was always my first love. I enjoy the sport more than I do football. Uh, the, it's a better business model to me than from a player standpoint, football. But at that point it was like, okay, we're going to start really focusing efforts on baseball. And we did. And by, two, by, by probably 2005, we were 100% baseball. And it really does come mostly from referrals, right? At this point, like your reputation is kind of the, the only thing you have, um, unless you're just pounding the pavement and just taking meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. Yeah. For me, my business was built primarily by at least warm calls, if not, you know, straight out referrals, but certainly, um, the, the cold calling, uh, just never really, it never really worked real well for me and my style, the type of business I had, uh, being a smaller boutique agency. So yeah, mostly referrals. Um, when baseball became your, your main thing, did you feel like at that point you had a really good handle on the ins and outs of baseball or was it still like a, a very much a learning experience as you started going through that? Because there's a lot, there's a lot yeah. to unpack in terms of baseball. There's a ton of rules, not just rules on the field, but there's so many rules off the field. And from a union standpoint and from the collective bargaining, like there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages that you have to kind of yeah. know inside and out. Yeah. So that's a great point. And yes, at that point, I was still learning. I'm, I'm still learning today. I mean, it's like, it's, it's just a a constant learning process. Well, it doesn't help that but, rules are changing as we speak <laughs> in baseball. Oh, so. <laughs> yeah, they, it, they, they, they are. And, you know, what, one reason why, another reason why uh, I moved strictly into baseball was because it just was too much. Because you're not only dealing with a different, totally different set of rules between the two sports, but you're also dealing with totally different sets of people and relationships. Uh, you know, owners, general managers, uh, player personnel directors. It, it's it's all you can handle with one sport. And so it was. Once I realized that baseball was gonna was gonna work, um, then it was a no brainer for me to put the efforts into baseball. But I will say that by that time, by by you know the mid nineties, 
I feel like I had a really strong grasp of most of what you needed to know to do a great job for your, for our clients. What's the most challenging thing about representing baseball players versus football players? And I, I know that you probably know a lot of other agents who represent a lot of other sports, but baseball players to me are, are kind of unique animals in a lot of ways. But from your perspective, what are some, what are some of the unique challenges that baseball players have um, or that you've seen from your side of things with, uh, with ball players? I think uh, the most challenging thing is that baseball is such a developmental sport. And I think you're a great example of that. Oh yeah, for sure. You're a great example of that because you were an 18th round, is that right? 18th round draft choice? 18th, yeah. Okay. Out of Barry College. And not not the Barry College and not the Barry University in Miami, Florida, which I know you're all thinking. It's Barry College like Strawberry and it's in Rome, Georgia, which is right. northwest Georgia and it's very small. Yeah. So uh so I remember and, and this is a you know, interesting story, unique to us, but you went to the same small Christian high school mm-hmm. as uh, two of, two of my three kids. And, you know, your, your mom uh, was uh, the receptionist that kind of was like the face of uh, Providence Christian Academy, you know, that everybody would knew Teresa, everybody knew Teresa, the kid. Oh yeah. And I remember one time, probably as I was either taking my kids to the principal's office or beating them there or whatever. <laughs> but I remember one time your mom said, you know, uh, my son is, has turned into a really good baseball player and you need to really watch him. And I was like, I went back and I looked you up and I saw you were an eight, that you were uh, an 18th round draft choice out of Barry college. And I said, you know, he may be a good baseball player, but he's got to develop because he wasn't a first or second round draft choice. And if you just look at the percentages of guys in the big leagues, a much higher percentage are first or second round guys. So so the really challenging thing is that you can get a guy who's a first round draft choice out of high school. And it's going to be, you know, maybe eight years before he gets to the big leagues and gets to a point where, He's making money where you're negotiating for him and where you can get paid. Right. Because you don't make you okay. don't make money. Agents agents pretty much across the board don't make money right. until they negotiate a contract on your behalf. And you're really not negotiating a contract until you've been in the league for three years. That's right. Yeah. And I, I've neg- and I've represented a lot of first round draft choices who never got to that point. Mm-hmm. So it's so there's your challenge. So, for, so fortunately, uh, to finish the story with Moy Sports representing Colin McHugh, we get a phone call while you're in Double A from one of our clients who happened to be a second round draft choice, Josh Stinson. Yeah, who said, "Hey, hey, there, there, there's a guy on my team that's making a bunch our hitters look silly. They're making <laughs> hitters look silly, and y'all really need to, you know, give him a call because he's starting to think about agents and." Uh, the more I heard the kind of description of who this player was, because you didn't mention your name, I started kind of putting a piece of puzzle. I said, are you talking about Colin McHugh? Yeah, how'd you know? So, well, well, long story here. <laughs> long, long story. And, you know, by that point in time, you had developed into a player that uh, everybody saw 
had the potential to be have a really good major league career, which you did. And at that point, you were being pursued by a lot of agents. Yeah, it was interesting. At that point, um, you know, a little bit about my background with agents, and and you know this, but like a lot of people, I think, just assume that if you're a pro ball player, you just have an agent. But if you're in the minor leagues, I remember having a phone call with you early on where you were like, you really don't need one right now. You really like don't need you know, specific representation right now. Because in the minor leagues, you're not negotiating anything because you have no leverage. The only thing they're really doing for you is maybe putting some equipment in your locker, either through an equipment deal with a, uh, you know, with a brand or going out and literally buying shoes and putting them in, sending to you and putting them in your locker. Because, you know, when you're in the minor leagues, there's just not much that you need. And especially in terms of as a pitcher, like we didn't need bats. I didn't need gloves. I just needed a glove and cleats and that's really it. So I went, you know, I had an agent coming out of the draft who that was a, uh, a one of those stories where it's like guys get taken advantage of a little bit. He's a good talker. He knew he knew what he was saying. He sold me. I signed with him before the draft, and then within a year he was out of he was out of agency. He didn't want to be an agent anymore. So I was kind of out on my own. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, you sign with an agent thinking this is going to be the guy. Like this is this is the person I'm going to be with for. I don't want to say guy. There, there are also women in the industry, and I think there should probably be more women in the industry, to be honest with you. But um, like, this is the person that I'm going to ride with for my whole career. And then when that doesn't work out, that's when you see guys start to ask around other guys in their clubhouse, hey, who are you yep. with? Do you like them? How long have you been with them? Tell me some stories. Like, what's the, what's the issue? And, uh, and yeah. that's truly like that's – I remember talking to Stinney and being like, hey, I don't have anybody. I, I feel like I'm probably going to need somebody in the next couple of years, but – um, how do you like your guy? He's like, oh, let me let me hook you up. I love him. He's good. <laughs> and that's when I talked to Bill Rose the first time, who's one of your associates. And right. um, yep. I didn't know that Bill was working with you at that point in time. So like all these circles kept getting closer and closer and closer until we finally met, sat down. And then yep. um, what I want to talk a little bit about next, and I think this is one of the unique things in in sports that not a lot not a lot of people get to do this. And I think it's pretty cool is interviewing agents or agents presenting, uh, presenting their, um, their agency to you, uh, you know, essentially a pitch. And for a guy like me, who was, I was not highly recruited out of high school. I was an 18th round draft pick. I, I never had people really like recruiting me hard for anything. Uh, and so when I got to sit down with you guys and I, I interviewed six or seven different agencies, me and my wife at that point in time, Sitting down in the room and hearing these pitches from different agencies is really fascinating. But I want to know from your perspective, kind of what what you're shooting for in something like this. Like where where is this coming from? How do you feel like you're preparing for guys um, coming in? And, and is it pretty consistent across the board? Like this is who we are, and you know, kind of take it or leave it. Well, I mean, it's not as hard and cold as take it or leave it, but it is really it's finding the fits and and presenting who we are. And our approach, which I believe certainly is the right approach for us, is we want guys who are serious about their career, who see the value in having uh, someone who, you know, has a a strong um, academic background and a strong background in the game to do the meat and potato things of providing good career advice and doing good contracts when you get to the point where you've got bites at the apple. And then the third thing would be somebody that cares about uh, our clients and and their families. And that care translates into trying to help them understand that your your career is going to be over one day 
And you really need to start thinking about as early as possible, what are you going to do post-career? Because you've got the majority of your uh, your life is ahead of you after you hang your cleats up. So those things are important to us. And they're not, it, it's, you know, they're important to some players and to a lot of players, they, they don't see that. Or to a lot of players, what's important to them is some things that are, you know, more um, uh, glittery and what we call shiny lures, if yeah. you will. And so, you know, we're not, uh, we're not into that. Um, and the good thing, Colin, is, has been over the years, uh, we've just had such great, uh, rich relationships with uh, the players that we represent because, you know, they picked us because of who we are. And, and you know, it just, it just works for a better business relationship when you've got similar personalities and goals and, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, I remember when we were when we were having the conversation early on, me and Ashley had talked about, and you guys were one of the last uh, last um, agencies that we had interviewed. But I remember thinking a lot of these agencies and age specific agents just don't speak with the same voice that I'm speaking with. Like we're we're not we're not we don't sound the same. And if you're going to be the person in the room speaking on my behalf to the people who are making decisions about my career. I was like, I just want to know that your what the voice that you're speaking with is the same voice that I would be speaking with, and you know it's a little bit more metaphorical than than literal in that in that respect. But um, there really is there's a lot of different voices in the game, and not every player you know this like not every player is gonna speak like me. Not every player is gonna want the things that I no. want, and so it, every player is not always a good fit for every agency. It's not just who can put out the best sales pitch. It truly is like a relationship that you need to trust and you need yeah. to know. And I think from a, another unique perspective from baseball players and probably from athletes in general is that when you sign a player, you're not just signing the player. You're signing the player, you're signing their family, you're signing some of their friends, right. their entourage, maybe wives, girlfriends, kids. So you have a bigger responsibility on your shoulders than just that guy. And I know that brings along a certain set of challenges itself. Do you uh, do you have like some some stories or some uh, some experiences with working with not just the player but the people around the player um, that makes it uniquely challenging? Yeah, so uh, you're right. It's the player is your client, uh, but you're representing. It, it's a family affair, and whether it's wife, kids, a young player that's not married, um, father, mother, you know, especially if he's a high school player, you know. Uh, who's just you know going into the draft uh, out of high school? Um, it's important to to develop relationship with all of those people that are speaking into his life and who who uh, love and care for him. I think one of the biggest challenges is speaking of like the young players is uh, proud fathers. Proud fathers, you know, and I am a proud father. I mean, I was a proud father. Of my son, when he was you know playing. Uh, uh, high school basketball, you know, I thought he was the best player on the team. Well, he probably wasn't the best player on the team, but I'm his dad. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, w- when, when dads get involved and they, and they get involved, uh, particularly early on, it, it can be, it can be real challenging because they don't always see things with a, a you know, they, they're seeing things through kind of rose colored glasses. Uh, I did learn the hard way in one instance, uh, a player who 
was very close to his dad, and I probably spent too much time both educating the player and his dad. Not not early, it wasn't so much early on, but as his, as this player's career developed, the father stayed involved probably longer than he should have. Um, you know, the player had, had now was not in his teens or early twenties, but was in you know late twenties, and still the father was very very involved. And at a certain point, the uh, the player I think got very frustrated uh, by the interaction, and ultimately, and this was after representing the player through probably, gosh, eight nine years of his major league career, we were let go. And I to this day am convinced that the reason we were let go was it was the only way he could get. Uh, his dad a little bit more out of his business than in his business. So, and that <laughs> yeah, was, he, could, he could only ask you to change your number so many times, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, but that's a challenge. It's a, it, that, that's a big challenge when it comes to, you know, family. And in most cases, <laughs> I have to say that uh, with our clients, the wives have been great. Fabulous. So, uh, you know, maybe we've just, had a, had a had really good luck, but in most cases we've had really good wives. Baseball is one of those sports too, where um, for whatever reason, and I don't have a ton of interaction with with guys in other sports, but uh, guys get married pretty young in baseball. I, I would say like across the board um, in terms of athletes, like a lot of these guys are whether they're from the south or whatever, where where marriage at a young age is kind of more uh, more yeah. widely accepted or more expected. So I remember plenty of guys were married, you know, before they were 25, 26 years old. I was married when I was 22 and we were a little bit unique. We were kind of the only married couple for the first few years in, uh, in pro ball in the minor leagues. But you have, you have wives and girlfriends kind of across the board in baseball. It's, it's, it's unique to have a guy Mm -hmm. who's 30, 33 years old with, uh, with no wife or girlfriend. So that is, it's kind of a built in part of part of the agent relationship too, it's going to be. Another, I think, unique thing about baseball is that there are so many Latin players in baseball. And it is a, um, both from a language barrier perspective and from a cultural perspective, uh, it's got to be challenging to be able to relate to these guys the same way you would relate to an American guy. Have you, uh, have you had a lot of experience um, representing Latin players? We've had some, we've had a fair amount of experience. And um, uh, I love representing uh, Latin players. It's a it's a very satisfying thing to uh, to be able to help a Latin player who may, maybe you know comes from a country that's uh, uh, like the Dominican Republic. That's uh, they're coming from slim means, but the challenge is is the cultural difference and just that there it's a different mindset and. Uh, we have an agent that works for us uh, named Eddie Doscow, who uh, is like a father to the Latin players that we represent. Um, he cares about them. He loves them. Spanish is his first language. His parents were from the Dominican Republic. Uh, he was born in the United States, but he's, you know, he's, he's both Dominican and American, and he understands the culture. So... From my perspective, it's like I want to do a good job for them. They they have the same business needs that every baseball player has, but he understands what they're thinking. Whereas I just know they're thinking something different, but I have no idea what it is. It's like you don't know what you don't know. 
Yeah. I'm not Dominican. You know what I'm saying? Right. So right. it so so Eddie is such an important part because he is that's his culture. And that's the challenge. Yeah, that's gotta be extremely satisfying when you see when you see the relationships being built to a level that you can't understand and you, you probably will never get being, you know, being an American, being an American white man and being able to see, uh, you know, a guy from a culture in the Dominican and Puerto Rico. And I mean, all throughout Latin America where baseball in a lot of ways is these guys way out from a young age and to see the fruition of that and to see that actually happen and take place and be able to kind of celebrate with them and, Give them advice and lead them through uh, through a big league career is um, got to be really 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 cool. Well, you tell me, like play like having Latin American teammates. Um, I'm sure that you really enjoyed playing, you know, with a lot of your Latin American teammates. And just the diversity, that just fun to see the differences. But was there was there ever times that you went, huh? I, I wonder what he's thinking. Oh yeah, I mean, especially in the minor leagues. I mean, I was playing with. I mean, I remember playing with guys in rookie ball and um, in a single A ball where, I mean, they were 17, 18 years old, straight out of Dominican Republic, straight out of Panama, you know, a couple guys out of Cuba. And it's like the cultural divide to pick a guy up out of his culture that he grew up in and literally just drop him in wherever, in Kingsport, Tennessee, in Brooklyn, New York, in Savannah, Georgia, and say like, just go get him. I mean, it's wild to me. <laughs> to, to this day, I still truly believe that some of the Latin guys in the big leagues, they've gotten there so quickly that their language skills haven't been able to catch up. And they're doing, they're working their asses off to try and speak the language and learn it. But with yeah. the rate at which English is spoken at the big league level exclusively, uh, I can only imagine that they're probably getting 75 to 80% of what's said, but that 20% could be a big 20%. So I I remember when they when they instituted the, having a translator on every team I was like how have they not done this before I mean this is a third of your right. this is a third of your population in in the game right now um, that's not their yeah. first language and you're expect you're just expecting across the board for them to be able to you know hit the ground running when they get to the big leagues and you know when I was at the Astros there was plenty of young guys that like I had to pull aside and be like hey did you understand that did we did did you get what what he was trying to say and where you might get the words, some of the nuance is is not there, yeah. and that's why I think having a a Latin presence, like a veteran Latin presence on every team, I mean, veteran Latin presence both in the agency and on the on the club side, uh, is is not just a big deal, but I think it's completely necessary. And in terms of taking care of your players, it's got to be you have to do that at this point because um, I think it's unfair and it's doing it's setting up setting them up for to be a, at a big disadvantage uh, moving forward. If that's not the case, but well, you know, yeah, I would say probably you and, and all agencies now have to have to prepare for that. Have to have guys like Eddie yep. on staff who can do that. It's critical. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it without that that seat in the bus and it. And to have a guy like Eddie who really cares so much about these guys, it's just uh, it's a joy really to see him working with these guys. I want to rewind a little bit back to another referral that you got. And, I, and I'm not sure exactly where this referral came from, but Josh Hamilton and you had a working relationship for a long time. And I don't remember exactly how that started or when that came from, but I know that his career and his uh, his challenges were, were specific. And uh, you kind of being a 
huge influential part in a lot of that was something that was happening behind the scenes while what was playing out on the baseball field and in the newspapers was probably something very different. Um, but taking on a guy like Josh, was that something that you were excited about or was that something that like made you pretty nervous? Well, both. I mean, I was incredibly excited about it. I was a little bit nervous about it. I didn't realize the extent to which, you know, his, uh, the challenges that he has, uh, would later come up and, you know, at times and bite him. But, uh, he was, he's got a heart of gold. I love him dearly. What an incredible, incredible baseball talent. Holy cow. I can't imagine. Holy cow. I can't imagine what he would have done had he not had the, uh, battles, the demons that he battles. People tell stories about him in Texas hitting ball. I mean, at the old stadium in Arlington where he would hit balls up on the awning in right field. Like you can't hit a ball that far. Like I'm, I'm looking at him like there's no, no, you can't do that. And he could run, he could hit, he could throw. I mean, he was, he was everything. He was how you build a baseball player. If you could build a baseball player and then to yep. have everything else on top of that man. I mean, players, I talked with players who were not only on his team, but on the teams that were playing against him who said, Mike, we knew when he was taking batting practice by the sound of the ball coming off the bat, and we would all just stop and watch. And this is batting practice. Mm-hmm. He just had a incredible otherworldly, you know, talent that when he was in that sweet spot and we, you know, we had the good fortune of representing him when he finally got into the sweet spot, when he came back from uh, his suspension and entered the major leagues uh, from the point in time when he got to the Rangers. And we, re- we, we received a referral from his financial planner that uh, to this day was one of probably the easiest recruiting missions I ever went on. <laughs> the way Josh tells it, which is wild, Colin, because what was really wild about it is we had just come off of a all uh, hands on deck recruiting war for a player that we wanted so badly because we thought we were the right fit. We just we just knew this guy was going to have a great career and that we were going to be able to do you know great things side by side with him, help him do great things, and uh, he ended up not selecting us. And it was like such a downer for me and my staff because they worked so hard. We just like, you know what? You just got to trust the Lord. Like, we don't know. Maybe all this work won't be for nothing. Well, probably a month later, I get a phone call from his financial planner. And I go out to Texas to meet with he and his wife. We sit down at a cracker barrel. Actually, was sitting with his wife while he was parking the car. He walks in, he kind of looked at me, sat down. We had a great, and he looked at me. And later I said, well, when you looked at me, it was kind of, you know, you kind of paused a little bit. He goes, yeah, I, when I looked at you, I said, that's him. That's my agent. It's done. It's over. Uh, that's who I'm picking. And I was like, <laughs> did nothing. I mean, other than go have a, you know, a country fried steak at Cracker Barrel. So I went back and I told my staff, I said, see, all that work wasn't for nothing. We just got a different player. (laughs) And, uh, and then gosh, I've had so many cool things over the years that I've been able to 
been a part of uh, tangentially just as a as a player's agent. But one of the most incredible things I'll never forget is, and this was shortly after he selected us to represent him, he made the all-star team and was invited to the home run derby in Yankee Stadium. So me and Scott Sanderson went to to the all-star game and we, we saw him. He said, uh, Mike and Scott, I, I'm, a, I'm nervous. I'm like, well, why are you nervous? He goes, well, I don't know if I'm even going to hit a home run. And I'm like, look, I said, I said, look, do you mind if we just pray with you? You know, and we prayed with him in his room and just said, look, um, whether he hits one home run or no home runs or a lot of home runs, would you just let him have a good time and achieve what you have him here for? And it was like, he looked up after the prayer and he's like, okay, yeah, we can do this. And he goes out and for anybody who remembers it, it's probably the greatest home run exhibition that's ever been put on. It's unbelievable. I, he hit like and 18 in a row or something. It's something absurd. His first round, I believe his first round was 29 home runs. Mm-hmm. Well, he ran out of gas. And the rules back then, it was not cumulative home runs. It was, you know, who makes it to the next round and the next round. And he ended up not winning it. And people don't realize that it was Justin Morneau who won the home run derby that year. He didn't hit Mary. That's not not how I will ever remember that home run derby, though. I will never forget Josh and those homers just deep into like right center, like way over their bullpen. Oh, God. And we're on the bus going, we're we're on the bus. He invited Scott and I to go on the bus with him back to the team hotel. And we're on the bus. And his entourage, if you will, was all all down in the mouth because he didn't win it. But he had just put on the best, the the most incredible performance that I've ever seen a player put on it. And granted, it was an exhibition, but it was just an unbelievable. He, you had fifty five thousand people in Yankee Stadium chanting Hamilton, Hamilton. It was unbelievable. Well, Josh looked at all the long faces as we were riding back and he gets in the front of the bus and he looks at us. He goes, Hey, did we accomplish what we came here to accomplish? Then get some smiles on your face, faces. <laughs> and so, yeah, I guess you did. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. He truly one of the, one of the greatest baseball players I've ever seen personally that I've ever faced. Um, and then the struggles that he faced both in terms of uh, his off-field stuff, but also contract stuff. That was get, had to have been one of the most interesting and like kind of devastating contract negotiations because you you guys negotiated the. I mean, at that point, it was the biggest contract. Uh, was that the biggest contract of, for a position player of since a Rod? Maybe. Well, it was the second. It was the second biggest average annual value in the history of the game at that time. Yeah, um, it was a it was a five year deal. So it was not the largest because there were 10-year deals like Albert Pujols had done a, a, right. a longer deal and had done one up into the 200 you know, million range. But in turn, but for, for the issues that he brought to the table, I don't think anybody who knew the business thought he would end up with a deal longer than maybe two or three years. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was a talent like no other. And it's all about, you know, risk reward. And if things had turned out based on the way he had been playing, the reward would have been there for the Angels. 
So I don't think it was a bad decision for the Angels. It was just a risky decision for yeah. the Angels. And sometimes when you take big risk, you get big reward. But sometimes when you take big risk, it goes the other way. And this one went the other way. And it was just, you know, it was it was unfortunate. But uh, I feel like we did uh, a very good job for him and his family in maximizing what his talent brought to that industry as a business at that time. Without a doubt. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that agents in general do for players is no matter who you are across the board, like I am not Josh Hamilton. I was not Todd Helton. I was never, I was never going to be that guy, but to maximize the amount of maximize the bites at the apple, like you talked about, and we've talked about this a bunch of times, but um, as a baseball player, you really only have maybe two or three bites at the apple over the course of your career, if you're lucky. And so arbitration, those are going to be little nibbles at the apple because the the amount that you can really negotiate over is pretty little. And then when you get to free agency is really kind of when you have a you have a chance depending on what free agency looks like in that given year or or in and how you've done leading up to it. But for you when in terms of a negotiation, because I know for me deciding on you as as my agent, negotiation was probably one of the bigger things that I was I was worried about because like I said, all the other stuff, all the fancy things, all the shiny bells and whistles, collectively won't ever add up to what your contract is going to be worth. And the amount that you can make or break on a negotiated contract is a lot. And so for you, when it comes to a negotiation, what makes a successful negotiation on your part? What goes into it? Well, of course, at the end of the negotiation, what makes it for a successful negotiation is a great result for your client and an acceptable result for the other side. And that's something that I learned um, early on when I was working for Robert Fraley. He sent me to, um, to Harvard, to the Harvard Negotiation Project. And I was uh, very just fortunate to have two weeks of intensive training under a guy named Roger Fisher, who for anybody listening to the podcast, if you want a good book on negotiation, I would recommend the book Getting to Yes by Roger Fisher. And um, it's uh, the principle behind it is tough on the issues, respectful of the people, great result for your client, acceptable results for the other side. And I think that's what makes for a good negotiation. Um, And, you know, to get there, uh, you have to uh, do your homework, do your preparation, and understand your client, what he brings to the table, and understand the needs of the clubs, uh, and in particular the clubs that are expressing interest in your client in free agency. Of course, when you're talking about arbitration, it's a different analysis. It's just as important. Every every level is important. Um, salary arbitration, to me, is one of the the most uh, academically challenging and rewarding negotiating environments. And we've partnered up with a, you know, a, a good lawyer that you know who does a tremendous job. Oh yeah, um, Jay Reisinger. And uh, I'll brag on you, Colin. You're one of four players in the history of salary arbitration to have won back-to-back cases against their team. And that's, that's right. out of I don't know how many hundreds of players. Lots, out, yeah. But there's only been four, and you're one of four. I remember the second time we went, you kept saying, "You're like I, I want to, I want to make you aware." I just want to make you aware of the percentages here. You're like, you never go into an arbitration 
50-50 as a player. You're always maybe 60-40. And in this in this case, after you already won last year, it's probably less. But um, you're like, I think we got a good case. But I just want to. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna let you know ahead of time. Always managing my expectations. Boy. But man, it was. Uh, it was. It's exhilarating. It's fun. And it, do you still feel like you get a, like a kind of a high from a good negotiation still after all these years? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's one of the best feelings when that negotiation is complete and you look back on it. And and I can say this. I've never. I don't know. That there's ever been a negotiation that I haven't looked back on and gone you know, maybe I could have done this a little better or this a little better. You're never fully satisfied, you know, but, but at the end of the process, it's a great feeling to have that deal linked. I remember you said something to me about leaving something on the table because at some level, a negotiation is going to get down to the 11th hour and there are going to be, there's going to be an, an amount of space between the two sides. So the idea of leaving something on the table was always really interesting to me. Is that something that you still that you still talk about and think about as you're going through these things? Yeah, and you know who the the agent that I that I learned that from was Bob Wolf. Like early early in my career, I remember hearing him speak and that was a principle that he that he brought into negotiations. And even if it's just a little change, it's like having a little bit that you there that you where you just haven't absolutely just terrorized the other side, but you've, you could honestly say you left a little bit. Look, if you're never, ever going to negotiate with the other side again, then who cares? Sure. Burn the boats. Why not? Yeah. Why not? But you know, in an industry where you're going to be, you're going to be at the table with them again. It's, it's a principle that makes sense to me. Do you still have a certain amount of, I, I don't know, I don't want to call it necessarily respect but from a business perspective do you measure out how how hard you're pushing because you know that these guys you're going to come to over and over and over again and that they talk you know they talk individually as well in between the two teams uh yeah i mean it's just a competitive environment and you're you know if you're not competitive then you're not you're not going to do a good job and you know you look i want i want to know that my guys are getting great deals. And, you know, I, I believe that, you know, we can show, we can show that they do. Uh, but look, we're, you know, we're wanting to, to know that our clients are being well paid for the talent that they're bringing to the clubs. And that talent is very rare and they should be well paid. Yeah. And, and that's one of the hardest conversations you have with people who aren't in baseball is the idea of the economics of supply and demand when it comes to baseball players like no should baseball players on face value be paid what they're paid just because of what we do absolutely not like we don't do anything more special than anybody else except that not many people can do what we do and it is a extremely widely demanded skill to have i mean television networks pay billions and billions of dollars to put us on tv every day good bad or indifferent so um the supply and demand of it says that there should be X amount of level of uh, of compensation for that level of demand. Um, but it's still it's still strange to me to think that baseball players can make as much as they do or should make as much as they do. But as an agent, you have to kind of put those things aside and say, this is the market. The market says it's X, whether we think that's a good market or a bad market. And we have to kind of push for for this, right? 
Sure. And I think the thing about players that they don't get enough credit for is just how talented they are versus, you know, just how talented those players that make it to the major league have a, a talent that is very, very rare. And I think that the average, whether it's a guy or a girl, and I'll just say guys in, in baseball, because guys play baseball, girls play softball, guys mm-hmm. will sit there and look and remember, well, I played shortstop. That wasn't that, I could make that play. Let me just tell you something. You, you have no idea how ridiculously talented that play, that shortstop just made to get that guy out by half a step. On that ball, he hit up the middle. I mean, it's unbelievable the talent that they bring to the, that 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 you guys bring to the table at that level. Man, sometimes I would I'll go to the infield and just take ground balls in the infield before BP because I want to like remember what it feels like to be just a everyday position player, and the ease with which some of these guys you're right like you like you said make these plays and how hard it is for me to field a ground ball cleanly, make a throw, hit a guy in the chest from 130 feet away, whatever it is, is so hard to do that consistently. Not to mention there's nobody running in BP. I have uh, no fans yelling at me. I have nothing on the line. Um, so yeah, the, even even up at our level, the the amount of talent it takes to do specifically what you do in the, on the baseball field um, is wild. Yeah. Um, all right, so I, we got a couple. I got a couple more questions for you, and then we'll kind of round it up. I, I really appreciate you again being here and and talking to us about this. Um, we talked about yeah. kind of the entourage and about players having a tendency to kind of be prima donnas in a lot of ways. Do you have something in your mind that was a particularly ridiculous request from a player or like a player's uh, entourage party? Because we request a lot of things. I mean, like. Yeah, agents kind of get the raw end of the of the bargain a lot of times because if a guy can't take care of it himself or his wife or whoever is around <laughs> him won't take care of it, it pretty much falls to a phone call to you, a panicked phone call to be like, hey, I need blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't consider that. That's like, that's my, I see that as our job. And it's, and, and those challenges and, you know, maybe it's something that the player should have thought of and didn't, whatever. <laughs> I, I I have no, I have no problem with those things. In fact, that's what we're there for, and um, and and we see those challenges, and we 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 love solving those problems. Um, I w- when I hear the word ridiculous, uh, my mind keeps coming back to a player years ago who called me up and said, "Hey, Mike, can you get me an invitation? There's a party at the Playboy Mansion I want to go to. Can you get me an invitation to the Playboy Mansion?" And I'm like. Are you kidding me? Are you really asking me this? <laughs> Let me tell you something. First of all, if you want your career to go anywhere, <laughs> you're very talented, but there are there are enemies to your career, and you're about to walk into about 50 of those enemies <laughs> right now. <laughs> okay? So, no, I'm not going to get you an invitation, but if you think you, you, you want to be there, you're a big boy. Get your own invitation. Uh, I didn't last as his agent very long, but he didn't last as a player very long. So, <laughs> yeah, I think those things probably went hand in hand. Um, I can't, I can't imagine you didn't just have Hughes, Hughes' number. You just give him a call, and say, "Hey, Hef, I got a guy." Oh yeah, put him on the list. He was on my speed dial. Man, all right. Well, we have one more question that we ask everybody. 
uh, it's not serious at all. But the last time that you flipped on your music streaming app of choice or turned on Apple, uh, Spotify, whatever it is, what was the last thing you listened to on purpose? Oh, gosh, the last thing I listened to on purpose. Um, well, actually, it was uh, Amazon has a station called Grill and Chill. And so whatever was on Grill and Chill, which would have been like Jackson Brown and, you know, uh, maybe some Beatles. Um, that some kind Van of, Morrison or something like that. Yeah. Van Morrison. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Did you get Labor Day cookout or something? Yeah, we were at the lake on the boat and there could be worse. There could be worse things for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I appreciate this, man. This has been, this has been a blast. I know that there's a lot of information out there that only me and you will ever know about, but I, I appreciate you giving a little, little sneak peek to, to everybody who's listening and um, hopefully we can do this again soon. That's awesome, man. You're doing a great job with this. Keep it up. And, uh, and um, thank you for inviting me to be on it, Colin. You, you just travel inside Then I know how